Do you love God but struggle to fit in? Do you have questions that never seem to get answered? Do you just want to have honest conversations about things that matter? Well, let's slow down and take the time to do just that. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. This week, pastor, author, podcaster, all around, super awesome dude, Colby Martin. We've gotten this one wrong. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight identifying. Quick word from our sponsors, Rise Nutrition, still available for online and curbside pickup. Check them out at Rise Menominee on Facebook, and that's Rise with a Z. Same thing with Infinity Beverages. They are available for online and pickup services. You can check them out at www.infinitybeverages.com. Hey everyone, hope you're doing well today. We are finishing up our conversation on the evangelical church and the LGBTQ community today. And we're going to do that by talking about the verses in the Bible that seem to address the subject. So I didn't want to do this one myself. And so today you're going to hear from a incredible man. His name is Colby Martin. He's written a book called Unclobber that addresses this exact issue. I do want to let you know that there is absolutely no way that we can get to the bottom of this in just this short podcast. You are not going to leave this podcast feeling as if you've got it all figured out and you understand all six of those verses. That's not going to happen. So I certainly encourage you to also get and read Kobe's book on Clobber. You can find it on Amazon and I'll put a direct link in the show notes. So without further ado, this is Mr. Colby Martin. Well, hey, Matt, it's wonderful to meet you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. My, uh, and to all the listeners, my name is Colby Martin, and I live in San Diego, California. I'm a father of four sons and a husband of one wife. And uh, my wife and I have been here in San Diego for about eight years now. Six of those have been us uh, leading the church that we started in our living room uh, six years ago. And so this has been a wonderful place for us to raise our kids, for us to build a faith community that we adore and feel safe and welcome and loved in and loved by. Originally, I'm from Oregon. And then between Oregon and San Diego, we spent like five years in uh, Arizona, outside of Phoenix. The desert, the wasteland, really was the wilderness. I don't know why anybody lives there other than the cheap housing, <laughs> but uh, no offense if any listeners are from Phoenix. It just wasn't for us. We need color. That's really it. We need color. Uh, color and less heat. And so here we are in San Diego, and we love it. And Matt, I'm honored to be here with you. The feeling is extremely mutual. I'm so honored and pumped to have Colby on this podcast. Now, something that's helpful for this conversation, and honestly, for those of you who are going through this process in your mind and heart right now, is to hear people's journeys. Now, Colby didn't always stand in the camp of being open and affirming to the LGBT community. It was a journey to get from where he was to where he is now. So I asked him to share just a little bit about that process. Yeah, I was born and raised in a conservative Baptist family. And so we did the go to church multiple times a week, if you include Sunday school and youth group and choir rehearsal and Sunday night church. And in high school, I had a moment uh, going into the senior year of high school where I 
was on a youth trip, and in this moment, I real I had this fork and road moment. Where I realized I'd really just been a, a a Christian in name only. You know, I just kind of went to church and did the thing because my, my my family did it. Uh, but then at this event, I was had this powerful moment. This this um experience with God where I really felt, you know, back then I would have said I felt called to the ministry and I decided I'm going to give up my dreams of becoming a graphic designer and I'm going to go to Bible college. I'm going to get my degree in ministry and I just want to serve people. I want to serve Jesus. And so that put me on a course of full-time ministry, which I've now been in for 15 years. And so I went to a Baptist college because that was where my family had gone to. And so I, I further entrenched myself into the conservative, I would call it a conservative evangelical framework. My roots were deep is my point. And my training was intensive and comprehensive. And so when I graduated from there, I knew all the answers. I had everything figured out. I don't know if you've ever met a 24-year-old who had everything figured out, but that was me. I had all I had all the answers. Bible answer guy. My, my communities loved me and applauded me for it. Yeah, but then a couple years out of college, I started reading books that, that would never be approved by my college professors from authors like Brian McLaren, Rob Bell, N.T. Wright. And it began awakening inside of me this idea that asking questions is not so scary and not having the right answers is a legitimate spiritual posture <laughs> you know to be able to just respond to a question with i don't know this was a new phenomenon for me matt and this set me on a multiple year experience of figuring out that within the 2000 years of christianity there have been a lot of different ways that people have approached spirituality and religion and God and Jesus and the Bible and the church, uh, rather than just this one narrow Baptist evangelical framework that had been given to me. And so that really just set me on a journey of, like I said, asking questions and, and being explored to more ways of thinking about it. It was a couple years after that where I was working at a large church in Salem, Oregon as a worship pastor, and I was in the process of getting licensed through the denomination to become a licensed pastor. And I was reading the handbook, and because I had to study for this four-hour interview, and I'm reading the handbook, and there's this line, it's almost a throwaway line. And the line says that we as a denomination do not permit practicing homosexuals, that was how it was phrased, practicing homosexuals from being members in churches or serving in leadership. And, you know, I, I, have, to be, I have to be honest with the listeners. At that time, I was theologically in a place where I more or less agreed with the sentiment that anything other than a, a heterosexual marriage covenantal relationship was an abomination in the eyes of God. I would have theologically signed off on the idea that being gay was a sin, homosexuality was a sin. But I'm reading this line. I'm reading this prohibition, this denial of membership, of the capacity to serve in parts of the church. And suddenly for the first time, I, I noticed this misalignment between my head, which was firmly rooted in a theology that said being gay is sinful, and my heart, which all I could describe it as, wait, what? <laughs> like, I get it, but what? And that was the first time out that I noticed that I, I had this, this tension between my head and my heart. And I just sort of noted that. I'm like, that's interesting. Like, I've, I've never I've never really investigated this topic. I've never really considered it. I had just assumed that the Bible was pretty clear that being gay was a sin. And, uh, you know, at that point, I didn't have anybody in my life. I didn't know anybody who was openly gay. I didn't have any gay friends or family members. But but a couple years after that, I, I, I thought, okay, you know what? It's time for me to actually buckle down 
and figure out what I think about this issue. What to think about? What does the Bible actually say and not say about homosexuality? And it, for me, it was an exercise of theological inquiry and convictional integrity. If I'm going to believe this thing, then I want to believe it and I want to know it. And so then that, you know, as I wrote right in my first book, Unclobber, that set me on a, a journey of studying what have been called the clobber passages, these six verses in the Bible that historically have been used by the church to justify the discrimination against people who identify as LGBTQ. And uh, over the course of that study, I came out on the other end saying, nope, we've gotten this one wrong. We've gotten this one wrong. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight identifying. I really appreciate that in regards to this issue, Colby didn't just blindly accept what was being taught to him. He wanted to be able to back up what it is that he believed. And if he was going to believe this way, he was going to back it up by digging into the Bible and figuring out really what it had to say. So now the question, right? What does the Bible have to say about this? Dig in, settle in, grab a little bit of popcorn, here we go. There's about six verses in the Bible that historically the church has used to support then justify their position of essentially being anti-homosexuality. And so over time, those became known as the clobber passages because they were used to oppress and demonize and marginalize LGBTQ people, which amounts to feeling like you're being clobbered with when you're over and over again told that you're an abomination and you can't inherit the kingdom of God and entire cities in the past were destroyed because of people like you. So they, they kind of got this moniker clobber passage. And so that's why my book is unclobber because I wanted to show that, uh, no, if you dive into these six passages in the context in which they're written both culturally and then textually what you discover is they they really don't teach what the church has said the first one that kind of comes up in the bible is in the story of genesis 19 with the cities of sodom and gomorrah and this one fortunately most people even who are are still in a more traditional place as it relates to uh, non-affirming of, of queer people most people are even saying okay yeah you're right sodom and gomorrah we can't really argue that anymore that that is anti-LGBTQ. Because what you discover is the reason why these cities were destroyed by God has nothing to do with sexual orientation. And it has nothing to do with people being in same-sex relationships. That this was about uh, inhospitality, this was about gang rape. Even later on the Bible tells you Oh yeah, you want to know why Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed? Well, here's the reasons why. Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jesus himself. So that's the first clobber passage. Easy to unclobber, if you will. Uh, then the next two show up in Leviticus, and they're worded very similarly. I think chapter 18 is one, and then chapter 20 or 22 is the other. But there's a verse that a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, for it is an abomination. And this is the famous phrase that has been plastered on countless picket signs, leveraged in numerous Facebook comment wars, uh, that it's an abomination to God. And so in my book, I try to say, okay, well then what does this term abomination mean? If we're going to stand and build an entire theology around this idea that to be gay is an abomination, we better have a darn good understanding of what abomination is. 
And what you discover, Matt, is once you dive into it, it doesn't mean what we th- think it means. Uh, and so the book explores how this Hebrew word tova really does not mean a moral offense that is for all time. It really has to do with a cultural violation, a boundary of cultural violations and expectations. For me, that's a real interesting one to look at and say, oh, whatever they were describing, and even in the book, I go into what is a man with a man as with a woman? Can we unpack that a little bit more? Because again, part of the problem here is that in English, these seem so clear and obvious. Well, these weren't written in English. They weren't written for us in the 21st century. We have to have a shred of decency in our bones to say, okay, we can't take letters and poems and stories that were written thousands of years ago and just read them in our modern day English and think, okay, we've got it all figured out. We have to do a little bit more than that. So the Leviticus passages, they don't mean what we thought they've always meant. Then when you get to the New Testament, you have Romans chapter 1, which is oftentimes the hardest one for people to get past. Even if you can sort of dismantle and and, and show how all the other ones don't say what we've been told they said, Romans 1, I think, trips people up a lot. And this is why it was my favorite chapter in the book. And I'll just say to the listener, there's no way I can do it justice on this podcast. So I do encourage you to, to check out that chapter in the book. But what I'll say here is this, as I understand it, well, I, not just me, as I and other scholars understand what Paul is doing in the opening chapters of this letter to Rome. Because again, Paul's not writing a theological document that he hopes the church will use for the next 2,000 years to create doctrinal statements that can stand on our bookshelves for all the time. No, he's writing a letter to a church addressing real, practical, time-sensitive issues. And one of the biggest issues that was going on in the church in Rome is that they were dividing over cultural boundary. There was the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, and they were not getting along well. There were some real power struggles there. And I, in the book, I go into why that is with the, the emperor having evicting the Jewish people for a while and then coming back and the Gentiles. So a lot, a lot of Paul's work is how the heck do we build communities with two incredibly different groups of people, which is not entirely different from what we're, <laughs> we're trying to figure out how to do today, is it? So in the opening chapters of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, he's trying to, as I talk about, he's trying to get Jews and Gentiles to all realize that they are on the same footing. And this, this passage that is often used to say, well, this is how Paul thinks about gay people. This is how Paul thinks about homosexuality. Really what Paul's doing is he's using a rhetorical device to stir up and whip up the prejudices of the Jewish Christians. He's basically getting them to confront all of their biases. He's quoting from uh, the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, He's using a rhetorical device that is often used to try and get your audience in an emotional fever pitch. And he gets them all, all the prejudices exposed, and then he flips the switch in chapter two. He flips the switch on them and tells them that this sort of attitude, this judgmental attitude is the problem. Not the things that he listed in Romans chapter one, which we often think are Paul's ideas. These aren't Paul's thoughts or ideas. It's a rhetorical device. So again, that's a little bit confusing if you don't read the whole uh, the whole chapter. But the point is, is what Paul was actually trying to do is he was trying to bring Jews and Gentiles together. And sadly, we've then taken his words, this opening chapter of Romans, and we've used it to pull people apart, to pull people who identify as uh, straight, pull and rip them apart from people who identify as something different. And then the last two clobber passages are very identical. They're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and 1 Timothy, and Paul just lists a number of different vices that he says are incompatible with life in the kingdom of God. They are inconsistent with this new way of being human in the world of mercy and compassion and forgiveness and grace and love and so on. And one of the 
significant crimes here <laughs> is that in 1946, the RSV translators introduced the word homosexual, the English word homosexual, into the Bible for the first time, which is a term that we have created to try and name that people are born with the varying degrees of, of sexual orientations. And we've introduced this term, which has brought all of its baggage and all of its weaponry power into our English Bibles that was never intended to be there. And in the book, I talk about what were these Greek words then, and what was Paul trying to articulate, and does that map on at all to what we now think of the term homosexual. And what's even worse is that some translations will say that homosexuality is incompatible with the kingdom of God, and some will say homosexuals are incompatible. And these are saying two different things entirely, because one is just an orientation. It's just homosexual. If you're just born gay, then sorry, you're SOL. If you get that translation, you could just be the young kid who's like, oh, just because I have these feelings inside me, suddenly the translation says homosexual. It's like, oh, just my identity is now condemned me. And then other translations say, you know, imply that it's the actions. So there's all sorts of confusion with translations. And so in the book, I tried to take us back to sort of the original intent and explore what might have really been going on in those times. And my conclusion is none of these clobber passages provide any sort of biblical justification to create boundaries and parameters in which those who identify as lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, queer are disqualified from participating in the family of God. My guess is that many people listening to this podcast have never heard somebody say those words. You've always heard the opposite. But I have come to discover as I've been seeking out answers or just discussion about difficult questions that there's always more than one side to a story, and especially when you're trying to decipher what the Bible is saying. This is not just as easy as it says this in English, so it obviously is. It's just not that simple. I wish it was. Believe me, I wish it was. We've talked a lot during really the last month and a half or so about how when you engage in this dialogue, whether it's this issue or whether it's about the Bible or predestination, I mean, you, you fill in the blank there. But when we engage in dialogue that I guess could come across as confrontational to the general standards of the evangelical church, there's often a cost that comes along with it. And Colby's story, as you can imagine, is no different. You're not wrong. There is a cost to going against the uh, the theological grain when you are rooted inside of, like I was, a, a very closed-off conservative evangelical world. So for me, the, the cost was uh, my job. So when, when my boss and the elders discovered that I was affirming of LGBTQ people within five days, I was fired from my job that I'd been a faithful pastor at for over five years, leaving my wife and I and our kids to pack up and leave town. We're still climbing out of the, the economic pit that that put us in, and that was eight years ago. So there's an economic cost, there was a vocational cost, there was a, a, a massive relational communal cost as that church, those were our people. That, my wife and I, both our family were back in Oregon, so when we moved from Oregon to Arizona, we were like starting from scratch. And so building up a community in five years is no small thing. 
But then when the church says we've fired this guy because he has theological ideas that, I forget how they worded it, but are counter to the heart of the gospel, <laughs> they, they wouldn't even like name what the issue was. You know, most people in the church were like, woof, glad Colby's gone. Sounds like the church really protected us from his heretical ideas. So we were, nobody wanted anything to do with us. You know, we threw, we threw ourselves a, a moving away party and like four people showed up. So there was, there was a massive, there was massive costs. But even as I, even as you ask the question, and as I'm reflecting on that, what I think isn't often considered is that there's also costs in not moving forward like we did in terms of aligning our internal convictions with our external reality which is ultimately what that move was for us. Like I had lived for so long out of alignment. Earlier I talked about the misalignment of the head and the heart. Well, then I found myself out of alignment with my internal convictions were moving in all sorts of directions, but my external reality was this this, this confined conservative world that didn't have any space for questions. And that's a, that's a real cost. The cost on your own soul, on your own emotional and spiritual well-being, when you are forced to live out of integrity with yourself when you're forced to live where you're afraid to tell people what you're thinking or or to talk about the questions going on that is a a, an interior cost that we don't quantify as much as we quantify the loss of job and the loss of house and all that so you know there's been a number of people over the years that i've interacted with that have had similar experiences to mine where they have whether it's been in ministry or leadership or something and they finally do kind of come out with their new theological positions and they do end up losing things i've not yet met one matt who didn't wish that they would have done it sooner once you're out of that space and you can live with more authenticity and honesty and vulnerability that's there's a type of lightness to that that is unbelievable so even as hard as it was to lose the job lose the home lose the friends the the lightness of our of our souls of my wife and mine's souls to be able to just be who we were that that was huge that was huge so there's there's a cost uh, on both sides for sure as we draw this podcast towards a close i just wanted to make sure i got the heart of this because boy, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of all of this hurt and all of this frustration and job loss? And you could go on and on and on, depending on whose story you're talking about. So for Colby, I really wanted to hear from him. Why? Why is this issue this important? For one, there's very real lives at stake. So the the, the data is clear. We, we know the numbers as it relates to especially youth, LGBTQ youth who live in religious homes who are non-affirming. The, the suicide attempts and the successes are multiple times greater for LGBTQ people. So first, we're just talking about lives here. So this matters because people are, are quite literally dying over this harmful theology. And also, it, it matters... Well, there's just there's so many things that come up for me in that. It matters because, for me, like the integrity of the heart of the gospel is at stake. And what I mean by that is, as I understand Jesus, part of what his mission was, 
was to demonstrate that the family of God is far more diverse and eclectic and beautiful and open and inclusive than people had ever ever could have imagined. And so he shows up trying to to continue to open up the the margins and eliminate the the boundaries and destroy the tent poles that have kept people from being on this in out us them included excluded dichotomy. He shows up and he's like, no, like everybody, everybody is a love child of God is sort of my <laughs> paraphrase of the work of Jesus. And then I don't know how far into the the experiment of Christianity, but it wasn't too far into it where the wide open posture of Jesus started to constrict again and they started to create more and more barriers based on belief and you had to have the right beliefs or you had the the right practices or or do the right rituals in the right way. And so here we are 2,000 years after the advent of this way of living in the world and we seem to be no better off than when Jesus first showed up on the scene as it relates to religious leaders creating very specific yokes that are heavy. Yokes of belief. You got to believe the right theological statements in the right way. Yokes of religious ritual. You have to be baptized a certain way at a certain time in your life, or you have to partake of the Eucharist at a certain way by a certain person for certain times. You have to say the right prayers. And these yokes are freaking heavy, man. People are, are buckling under the weight of them. Whereas Jesus is like, follow me, because my yoke is light. It's light. I don't even care what you believe. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what you believe. I care how you love. I care how you love. So for me, the, the heart of the gospel, uh, in many ways, is at stake. When we get to issues like this, and we start to say that you don't get to be in the family of God if you were born a certain way or you don't get to be a Christian if you love someone of the same gender. We are restricting access to God when we do that. It's important because people's lives are at stake, and I think the heart of the gospel is at stake. I hope over these last few weeks you've come to understand the importance of this issue, and you've come to believe that we can't keep sweeping this under the rug, and that it's time for us to start understanding that our LGBTQ brothers and sisters are a part of the kingdom of God. Special thanks to Colby Martin. You're actually going to hear from him again in a couple weeks because he just released a book called The Shift and it's another topic that we have to have a conversation about. So you'll be hearing more from Colby. You can find him at colbymartinonline.com. And again, make sure you order Colby's book, Unclobber. I'll have the direct link in the show notes. Finally, if you love the Jesus Never Ran podcast, please do me a favor and subscribe. And then go one step farther and give us a five-star rating or just an honest rating, whatever you think it deserves. And finally, take a few minutes to give us a review. Just write what you think about the podcast. That's the best way to get in front of as many people as possible. Until next time, keep walking.